to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Thursday, February 1st, 2024. In this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard, we listen to author and journalist Asa Winstanley, whose new book is titled Weaponizing Anti-Semitism. He spoke with Aaron Mate and Katie Helper about what really happened on October 7th. Asa Winstanley is a journalist with the Electronic Antifada, an author of the best-selling book, Weaponizing Antisemitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. And we are going to speak to Asa primarily about the reporting he's done about what we know and don't know about October 7th and more and more evidence that Israeli forces killed their own people on October 7th. And Asa has been doing stellar investigative work on this, which we'll speak to him about along with other claims that have been made by the Israeli military about October 7th that have turned out to be false. Asa also lived in the West Bank for two years, by the way. And I just want to give a little blurb for his book, because both Aaron and I, full disclosure, blurb his book. This is what I said about his book, Weaponizing Antisemitism. This informative page turner is full of intrigue, a great source for anyone who wants to understand how antisemitism is cynically weaponized by people who don't actually care about combating antisemitism. Um, and also make sure that you do subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com because our uh, extended interview with Asa, our paywalled interview, is extremely interesting. And it's about the way he's been smeared by corporate media. He and other journalists who have uncovered the reality about October 7th have, have been smeared by incredibly embarrassingly bad corporate media like The Washington Post and The New York Times. All right, let's go to Asa Winstanley. Hey, so Stanley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You have been doing a lot of work on October 7th and specifically what we know and don't know about Israel firing on its own people. There have been a series of revelations that have come out in Israel that are not very well known inside uh, the United States, especially because the media doesn't really cover it. What to you are some of the most significant revelations that have come out so far? Israel, I mean, the, the latest one is simply that the Israeli high command, the Israeli military's supreme command on October 7th, reactivated uh, a standing order in Israeli military circles known as the Hannibal Directive, which allows Israeli forces to fire on their own people. Um, and this, this, I mean, this, this is a, it's a long-standing directive, Hannibal Directive, uh, which was um, established in 1986. But this is the first, uh, October 7th is the, the first known occasion that it's happened, that it seems to have targeted uh, civilians, Israeli civilians, rather than soldiers. And that, I mean, if that sounds crazy, I mean, it kind of is in a way, but the logic of it, such as it is, is that they want to stop the Palestinian or Lebanese fighters from capturing, taking Israelis captive, because those Israelis can then be used as leverage in prisoner swap deals, which end up releasing Palestinians from Israeli, uh, Palestinians or Lebanese or whoever it is from Israeli prisons. And, and this is what happened in the case of the, the Gilad Shalit um, exchange. If you remember, um, Gilad Shalit, uh, an Israeli soldier was captured by Palestinian fighters in Gaza in, in 2009. And it, in the end, I mean, he was held for years in Gaza treated quite well by all accounts um, and in the end he was released in a prisoner swap which cost the Israelis 1,000 Palestinian prisoners who were released um, including um, I believe it was in that release uh, Yahya Sinwar who is the leader of Hamas in, in Gaza now and so you know it, it what uh, it, I mean, there's been so many revelations that have come out actually in the Israeli press about this. And um, it's kind of staggering. Like it takes like 
for the mainstream media to to avoid this. I mean, they've been studiously ignoring it. There's there's so much evidence of the Hannibal Directive taking place, but the latest revelations are about a new. There's a new article uh, in the Israeli Israeli um, newspaper, the, their weekend supplement of the Israeli newspaper Yediot Ahronot, which was released the weekend before last um, by two journalists, uh, Ronan Bergman, who actually is a New York Times journalist as well, and has written several um, high-profile books, sympathetic books about Israeli intelligence services, including Rise and Kill First, uh, and uh, Yarov Zetun. Um, and what this piece says, it confirms that the Hannibal Directive was reactivated. And they say it was actually reactivated. They're very specific. They say it was reactivated at midday on the 7th of October and that um, 70 cars were destroyed, not by Palestinians, but by Israeli um, drones, helicopter gunships, or tank fire. So it's it's the kind it's it's it confirms what we've been saying all along. It confirms what we've been reporting all along with the electronic intifada. You know, it's been studiously ignored by the mainstream media. But there's been, you know, as you know, Aaron, um, your colleague at the Grey Zone, Max Blumenthal, has also been one of the few of us covering this, um, along with a couple of other websites, Mondo Weiss and the Cradle. But you know, outside of us the mainstream media in the West has been really ignoring this fact. And it actually says in, the, I mean, we got that it was a, it's a really long piece and it's actually quite significant historically. And it's, it's very sympathetic to Israel. I mean, it, it would be, you know, it's, this is not a sort of an anti, he's not anti-Israeli journalists or anti-Zionist or whatever. They're not critical journalists in that way, but they, they do a, 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 a fair job of reporting, you know, um, and um, what it actually says is, it, as I said, it reveals, you know, we, we saw these images of these cars destroyed of, um, you know, and these were cars driven by Palestinian fighters with Israeli captives um, for the most part inside them. And they were being targeted by the Israelis and they were blown up. And, and an undetermined number of these casualties were then later included in this death toll but you know maintained by the israelis saying that these were uh, israeli civilians killed by palestinians well you know this is confirmation that that is not true that the, that these were so called friendly fire incidents and in their article it says um it says quote it is not clear at this stage how many of the captives were killed due to the operation of this order that is the the hannibal directive and quote, at least in some of these cases, everyone in the vehicle was killed. It's a really significant new piece, which has confirmed a lot of what we've been reporting about this. And it's interesting because, as you said, this piece is not, you know, it's sympathetic to to Israel, obviously. Uh, it was published in, as you pointed out, uh, Yedioth Aronoth, it, it supplement seven days. Yeah. Um, and... I'm going to quote from the first, from the opening of it, which you guys uh, uh, on Electronic Intifada uh, had translated. On the morning of October 7th, some of the most impressive tales of heroism and self-sacrifice in the history of the country were written, but so too was a long series of failures, mishaps, and chaos in the army. So again, it, it, it seems in this way, it's like, you know, kind of fair and balanced. Uh, it's, not, it's not coming from an anti-Israel publication, and they're praising some of the responses, but also indicting many of the responses. And I also thought it was interesting you pointed out that they do translate, this This newspaper will translate their articles into English, but this one wasn't translated into English. Yeah, and there may not be anything in that. It may just be because it's um, a long article. Yeah. It could just be that, but I, I don't know. I rather suspect that it, it may be it, it, at least one of the reasons why it wasn't published was just because of the nature of it, that it, it reflects quite badly on the Israeli military. Yeah, but even without my nefarious conspiracy theory, it's just, you know, <laughs> it's significant that it has not been because that, of course, yeah. means that it hasn't been picked up as much by the media, but also as you are implying or stating, you know, if the media were interested in finding out what happened, I mean, Electronic Intifada had someone who's a native Hebrew speaker 
uh, translate it. Other places have. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen sort of. Um, it was interesting, like when this article came out, it was previewed the, the the day before the weekend, which is you know the day which is a Thursday. The weekend starts in um, on Friday in Israel. People were sharing uh, screenshots of the the kind of preview article of it online straight away, um, based on like a machine translation. Right. Um, but we got you know those are not always accurate so we got a um yeah we got dina shunra who's kind of is our, is our long long-term um hebrew translator she's a professional hebrew translator um and she she was brought up in in israel um although she she doesn't live there anymore but um she actually spent the whole weekend translating it yeah. um because uh, it's a very long article and um it's it's incredibly significant and People can read. Well, we we actually published the full translation just for reference at the end of the article, so people can read it in full and make up their own minds. And Hannibal is someone, a figure who uh, it, it's called the Hannibal Directive because Hannibal is someone who, under the Roman Empire, rather than I guess submitting, uh, committed suicide. Hannibal was a, a, a general of Carthage. So Carthage was the the in in ancient history was um, the great enemy or sort of the the nemesis of the Roman Empire. And he you know he of the the elephants Hannibal, who um, reputedly rode the elephants across the Alps. But the point is that it, he in history he is said to have, as you said, he is said to have poisoned himself rather than be captured alive um, by the Romans. So it cannot be a coincidence that it was it was named this. And there is this kind of strand. And, and again, uh, this I mean, this is something um, Max Blumenthal has written about. There's this strand in Israeli society, um, this kind of, I don't know, that some people have called it a death cult or uh, this kind of suicidal uh that's maybe not quite the right word for it, but a kind of suicidal impulse in a way, because the the graduation for another example is how is, is Masada. I mean, if, if the myth of Masada, which, you know, I'm sure you're both famous with, but uh, um, familiar with, but the Israeli soldiers at their graduation are taken to Masada, which is reputed to be in in mythology is reputed to be this last stand of Jewish zealots to the Roman Empire. And so the idea is that, you know, and they say when they graduate there is um, Masada will never fall again. So, you know, the, the implication being that we'd rather commit suicide than be taken alive kind of thing. Which and is so, what happened at Masada, right? According to the myth. According to, yeah. So the Hannibal director, I mean, it, it seems that, you know, it, it looks, I mean, according to this article, it seems like it happened it was it was soldiers on the ground or, or pilots who decided to do this. They decided to just because they'd been trained in this doctrine, the Hannibal Directive. Um, it happened in a kind of um, on the ground sort of grassroots way, and then soon after that, at midday, there was this specific order from the what's called the pit which is the Israeli um, military's high command in an, in an underground bunker below Tel Aviv, um, that, they, that all units of the Israeli military were permitted to operate the Hannibal Directive because a midday was the moment, according to this Bergman Zetun article, midday was the time when the, vid the first videos of the Israeli captives started being released. And this is another incredible aspect of this um article because it shows how um the the palestinian military assault on military targets on october the 7th it shows how incredibly successful it was because they the this this high command the pit so-called they didn't have they didn't really know what was going on and it was only by looking at it was only by looking online really that they could see what was happening so they according to this article they were they were um uh, we're relying on telegram channels in large part 
partly Israeli telegram channels, but also um, Hamas telegram channels. And that's how they saw um, these uh, Israeli, the videos of these Israeli captives. So they probably saw them emerge around about the same time as us. And the reason for this uh, intelligence failure was that that the Palestinian fighters had targeted the communications infrastructure and they deliberately um, targeted the the the, uh, the 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 communications masts and aerials and so forth around the military bases um, when they broke out of Gaza. And so the high command was in the dark. One more thing about, sorry, Hannibal, is that I... Uh, and Masada, I do think it's interesting that according to the Masada legend, which has been challenged by archaeologists, but according to the legend or the mythology around it, it's not just that they committed suicide rather than submit to the Romans, but that the men gathered together, um, decided that they would kill themselves, but also each man killed his own wife and children, huh. which is, hmm. We're know. supposed to celebrate all this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have to admit, I, I've had the misfortune of being taken on the Masada tour as a young North American Jewish person. And, you know, it was really corny. And uh, we're, it's supposed to be a very emotional thing. Like you're, you hike up early in the morning and they take you there and you're supposed to feel this connection to this place. Like the, the sacrifice was done for us. And it's really corny and obviously <laughs> a fantasy Dangerous. as well. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that part of, of the, they, I, I'd forgotten that actually. So it's interesting you bring that up. Katie, that um, they killed the, you know, uh, allegedly uh, how how true these things are is questionable. Yeah. But that the, the, they also killed their wives and children, and um, you see some of that rhetoric. You saw some of that rhetoric co- come out around the seventh of October. I mean, if you remember, do you remember this? Um, I mean, I, I, this guy Thomas Hand. I don't know if you saw the the video of that. Um, his daughter Emily Hand was um, yeah. captured captured by um, Palestinian fighters on October seventh, and there was this famous or infamous interview with her father Thomas Hand, who's a settler from Ireland by the look of it. Um, and um, in this uh, sort of uh, tear jerking interview with uh, Clarissa Ward of CNN, he said when he heard his daughter was dead wrongly as it turned out thankfully he heard from the israeli military that his daughter was dead he said yes and cheered because if you know about what happens to you in gaza it's worse than death and he was very tearful and very you know he sincerely seemed to believe this right and i you know thankfully it turned out that she was alive and she was later released in um in the in in during released by the palestinian fighters during the the brief uh, pause in fighting that took place in November, but you know, th- th- I mean, that's kind of a, a, an example of this this kind of ideology kind of seeping through. And I, I saw another example of that, which I wrote about in another article, where there was, um, I think it was in Kibbutz Be'eri, um, but there was a, there was another man who said that he had he in in an account. His name was Oyelin. Um, and he was the son of a, of a local politician in, I believe, in Kibbutz area. It may have been one of those communities near Gaza, one of these Israeli settlements near the Gaza Strip. And he said that he and his wife had discussed during the assault that if uh, by the by the Palestinians that if Hamas had come to them, he and his wife both agreed that he would take a kitchen knife and stab stab oh his God. wife. And, and this is what he was saying to. Um, Israeli media. So there is this kind of, uh, I don't know, suicidal cult really embedded in Zionism um, and in the Israeli state. And so, yeah, it, I mean, it's, um, it, and, and the thing as well that's really, I mean, it should be emphasized about the Hannibal Directive is that it's not over. Like it wasn't just something that was just happening on the 7th of October. They're still kind of doing it in Gaza, right? Because they're bombing everything, even right. when they know. Yep. There are Pal- Israeli captives there. Leave aside all the Palestinian, 25,000 Palestinian civilians they've massacred. They know Israelis' captives are there, and they're still shooting, bombing, and killing them. And it seems like it's starting to seem like, you know, the, mili- the, the political leaders of Israel do not want those captives to come home alive. Well, it's so ironic because 
there's so much propaganda about Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians, you know, which a lot of people use those terms interchangeably, mistakenly, um, that they are death cults, that they don't value life, that they value martyrdom. And as yeah. you're pointing out, and as we know, I mean, it's 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 insane that this country that was founded allegedly to protect Jews and save Jews and protect Jewish life from extermination, it's just insane to see that they're not doing everything that they can to get the hostages out. You know, this is this is their shtick that they do everything to save Jewish life. We know that they're fine killing Palestinians, but their thing is that they're supposed to care about Jewish life. And to see them, as we're discussing, actually bomb the places where these hostages are or open fire on them, which we saw them do. Right. As they were holding, you know, white flags. Yeah. Um, and it's just such projection. And so it's it's like it's kind of delusional. Um, and you know that that I'm I'm not saying there there weren't atrocities committed on October seventh, but there the the idea that because this this girl was had been kidnapped as his father suggested she'd be you know subjected to torture is kind of contradicted by the what we see when these hostages have been released and you know there's that girl who was released it wasn't just her she had her dog with her you know. She's right. able to keep her not just herself alive, but her dog alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just really stunning. Yeah, there's a lot of projection going on there. Absolutely. Um, people are, have been talking about that a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, being taken captive is going to be a scary experience. Course, and there's yeah. absolutely no doubt about it. But um, from the accounts that we've seen of the captives that have been released, they've been treated well from what we can see. Certainly better than how Palestinians are treated mm. uh, yeah. in Israeli prisons. Hey, so let me ask you, when it comes to October 7th, somebody might hear what you're talking about, read your reporting, um, you know, acknowledge that Israeli forces may have killed their own people, but they might say, all right, well, so what? It was Hamas that attacked. Uh, they killed civilians. They took civilians hostage. So yes, in the crossfire, Israel killed some of its own people. But But what does that really matter if it was Hamas that attacked first? So how would you respond to that? Well, what I would say was, is that it matters because it, the justification that is being used for this genocide that's taking place in Gaza right now is that that the um, attacks of of seventh of October were uniquely evil, as it's being put forward. That they were, you know, deliberately targeting and killing civilians. Um, and that it wasn't a military assault. You know, there was no rational, it was just killing for the sake of killing. There was no rational goals they wanted to achieve. And so I think it matters, you know, it matters because the the, the idea is that um, Palestinians are just killing Israelis, civilians, and just killing for the sake of it. And that it, these figures that are put out, you know, at first it was 1,400 Palestinians who have said, uh, 1,400 Israelis that they claimed were killed is, it, by the Palestinians. And then that was later reduced to um, 1,200. And, and now it's it seems to be, if you read some Israeli reports, it's um, they say they use this term more than 1,000. And so, uh, um, you know, as you look at the, the, the figures of the, the, the death toll, more and more you see that more and more of those people killed were actually uh not civilians like there's another example in this this uh article where it says that the the shin bet israel's domestic intelligence agency that its director ordered all anyone with weapons training anyone with a weapon to hand to actually take part in the fighting and to go down south uh, and uh, apparently 10, 10 Chimbet officers were killed in that on during the battles. Uh, now that's significant because if if you look at the the figures, which look, for example in um, Haaretz, which maintains this database of of the dead, the database is a bit confusing because it kind of blurs together Israeli soldiers who died invading the Gaza Strip since then in the ground assault with the israelis who were killed um on the 7th of october in the, and in the immediate days after so it's a little bit confusing but some of it the figures do include dates when they were when they were dead when they were killed and um it if you if you search through that 
if you do because there is you can in that database you can do a tax search and if you search for shin bat you can see three of the dead who are actually are described in that database as shin bat officers and that's interesting because what one of then none of them you, you can break down the the dead there's filters you can apply filters of civilian military police um and emergency services which is a bit ambiguous um but uh, at least on the surface sounds like it's civilians well all the shame bet officers are either civilian quote unquote or um emergency services so you know that shows that some of these alleged civilians were actually armed men who were taking part in the fighting on the day so you know it's um I think it's significant and facts like this do matter. Yeah, and it's also important because Israel has been caught lying about multiple other claims from October 7th right. in terms of yeah. putting out atrocity propaganda, talking about dozens of beheaded babies that turn out Absolutely. to be false. Yeah. Uh, and that makes it all the more important to get to the truth of what actually happened on October 7th. And that's not to deny that Palestinian militants executed civilians. Some of that is on tape. So that happened. But the question is, why wasn't Israel content just with showing what is demonstrably true why did it have to go ahead and put out all these false atrocity claims about dozens of beheaded babies and accordingly is it then also possibly exaggerating the number of civilians that were killed by palestinians to cover up for the fact that some were killed by israeli forces and you know on this note about uh, fake claims by israel let's turn to another fact check from an israeli uh media outlet this is Chan israeli uh, channel 13 who just put out a video uh, debunking claims put up, put up by the Israeli military about some of the alleged atrocities committed by Hamas. Watch the following footage of the Kafir Brigade commander from Channel 14. We arrived in Kibbutz Beri, and there I encounter two main images of the battle. Apropos of the enemy's brutality, one is a nursery school with innocent children. They were butchered, killed. You see the children inside the house. Eight babies, eight babies died. And another image that caught my attention is when I saw Jenya, may she rest in peace, an elderly woman from Kibbutz Berry, and I see the number engraved on her arm. And you say she went through the Holocaust in Auschwitz and in the end died in Kibbutz Berry. That's not something that you can't even understand it. And now we go back to the Israeli journalist who says, well, no eight babies were killed in Berry. According to the kibbutz spokesperson, and there's no woman named Jenya in Berry. And watch some more footage from not long ago of a soldier speaking. And now an Israeli soldier says, there were also children here, babies, who were hanged on a laundry line, really, in one line. It was very hard to see. When I saw it, it shocked me. You don't really understand what you're seeing in front of your eyes. Is it a picture or is it really reality? It's very, very hard to understand. And now back to the Israeli journalist who says, Baskila is talking about a supposed event in Kafar Aza. But in Kafar Aza, they made it clear long ago that this event simply didn't happen. By the way, he said the things, he was told that it didn't happen in a tour of foreign news journalists who came there. And pay attention to what the police spokesman said to the foreign media not long ago. Pay attention. And the spokesperson says, a pregnant woman cut open. The things that are happening are so sick. This is not a Netflix show. It's not a cable news show. None of that. No, this is real life. And back to the Israeli journalists. No, this also didn't happen. So many terrible, cruel things happened. Some of the most cruel things that can be done to a human being on 7th of October. Why were things that didn't happen said? So there we go. Uh, that's an example of you have three Israeli officials, soldiers, on camera caught lying through their teeth and that kind of debunking you will not see in u.s media you won't see it in uk media you do see it in israel i mean this is just an, another the latest example of this kind of atrocity propaganda that's um been coming out all along and has been been debunked all along and um i think in this 
this new article that I reported on um, by uh, Ronan Bergman and, and Yorav Zetun, if you read that, it shows really a large part of the reason for this atrocity propaganda. I mean, aside from just the general, you know, habitual defamation of Palestinians by uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli military, um, the reason is that the 7th of October was a massive military defeat for the Israeli military. And any, you know, any army is n not going to want to project that image of itself, of failure and of military defeat, because, you know, especially Israel. Um, and so really these kind of atrocity propaganda is a really, is it, when they're making these false claims of all these, um, you know, Palestinian massacres against Israeli civilians and, you know, the, the lies about mass rapes and all of this kind of invented stuff, it is a distraction from the simple fact that they were defeated mil militarily by um, a smaller armed force uh, of guerrilla fighters who um, who defeated them with, despite the fact that their um, military capabilities are far less sophisticated in terms of sheer military might. And so, I mean, I think that is a large part of it. And you see it so clearly in that your Zatun article. I mean, he, he quotes these very senior Israeli army officers or military officers um, who were watching the events on unfold on, on the day, you know, from telegram channels, mostly by the look of it. And he, one of them, he said, there's a really um, significant part of the article where he says that the Gaza division was overwhelmed. They completely, they overwhelmed them. You know, the, this the, this uh, supposedly invincible Israeli army was just completely overwhelmed by um, a force, a guerrilla for, a force of guerrilla fighters, which was on its surface completely inferior in terms of just uh, its uh, military might, but in terms of determination to fight and um, actual skill in fighting, it seems to have been superior. Yeah, and when we talk about you know the Israeli psyche and the and the trauma of October seventh, that to me is at the core of it. This is not about Israel uh, taking revenge for the killing of its civilians. It's mm. an occupier humiliated that the uh, that the people it rules over, you know, uh, these these subhumans, the way it views Palestinians, that they resisted, they fought back. And when you're an occupier, you can't tolerate that, and that makes Israel go crazy. And they've always said that. Ariel Sharon in 1967 said that our main deterrence weapon is the fear of us, right? It's like making making yeah. the subhumans fear us. And you go through any conflict that Israel has been involved in and, and you can see similar lines. The New York Times after October 7th said that Israel's aura of power was shaken by October 7th. And that's what they're trying to restore by massacring all these civilians in Gaza is their so-called aura of power. Nothing to do with self-defense or even uh, anger at their civilians being killed. It's about the people they're ruling over fighting back. And also they're wanting to cleanse that area and using this as an excuse. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, again, and then I'll throw it back to you, uh, Asa, but I just am stunned by, or not stunned, but if Israel cared, the, Israel's treatment of the hostages or lack of negotiation or bombing of places where hostages are totally undermine any claim that they have that about saving lives. Yeah. If this were just like a post a response to the, the atrocities of October 7th, you'd see them not bombing buildings that they're in. And I, I also think it's so significant, you know, this atrocity propaganda. I can't tell you how many people I've had discussions with on October 7th on the Israeli genocide who say, yeah, but, but these are people who, speaking of Palestinians, these are people who behead babies. These are people who rape, mass rape. These are people who, um, you know, to cut people stomach open and throw the babies into the fire. And then if you say, actually, those things didn't happen and you're being brainwashed, yeah. uh, if you say those things didn't happen, then you're a deny. Why are you defending Hamas? Why are you downplaying these atrocities? It's like, well, I'm I'm pointing out what happened precisely because these very emotionally manipulative narratives, which understandably 
elicit a visceral response are being used precisely so that whenever anyone brings up the fact that there's a genocide, you go back to what happened to the Israelis. They will call them the Jews because they'll also say this is just about anti-Semitism yeah. to the Israelis on October 7th. I mean, it's uh, it's very hard to talk about this. And that's exactly what they want to do. They want us to be stuck talking about alleged atrocities and then be on the defensive. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly what's happening. And that's, you're right. That's exactly the reason for it. And this dynamic that you're describing, Katie, I mean, it, this is exactly i mean this is exactly what happened um in britain with the labor party and jeremy corbyn i mean i know you're familiar with all this because uh you know you very kindly uh blurb my book for me <laughs> um yeah my book i mean in my book weaponizing anti-semitism i wrote about what happened to jeremy corbyn and it, it was the dynamic we see unfolding now in a quite different context is exactly the same so it's what you said. There's these massive, big claims, exaggerated claims that are made. Um, that you know, there's 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 a there's a little nugget of truth in there. You know, anti-Semitism does exist, right? And and even you know, there could be a few cases of uh, it happening on the left. You know, that does it, it, you know that could happen. You know, Israelis were killed on on uh, the 7th of October. Israeli civilians were killed on the 7th of October. Um, but these these claims, these uh, emotive, um, exaggerated, and in some cases, as you've just shown, fabricated claims, um, these things didn't happen. You know, So the idea that there was a, an anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party was untrue. Uh, and the idea that there was mass rapes on the 7th of October was untrue. The idea that, you know, there was 40 beheaded babies and so forth, completely untrue. These things were made up. So it, it is being deployed for, for the very similar reasons, because it makes, as you said, it makes it makes it very difficult to talk about. And if you're one of these few voices who actually point all this out and actually question the claims and ask for evidence, which is just the minimal practice of journalism, then you are gifted with smear efforts against you by the corporate media. So let's turn to one example of this, Asa. You, um, an article you wrote was uh, just attacked in the Washington Post. Um, Mazel tov. The electronic, <laughs> along with the electronic etifada, where you wrote this article, and the gray zone as well. Yeah. Was attacked. And this is the article. It's called Growing October 7th Truther Groups Say Hamas massacre was a false flag by Elizabeth Dwoskin. And the article tries to suggest that Electronic Intifada and Grey Zone have suggested that October 7th was a false flag, when of course we never did. That's a complete fabrication. It's a false insinuation. And specifically, she calls out an article that you wrote, Asa, but she doesn't link to it. I think for yeah. obvious reasons, because her characterization of your article is false. And so she doesn't want people to check for themselves. Yeah. Let's look at a bit of what she said. An electronic intifada article from November argues that most Israeli casualties on October 7th were perpetrated by the Israeli army, basing the story in part on a YouTube clip of a man who describes himself as a former Israeli general. The clip refers to these outsider observations as, quote, a confession. So, Asa, what is your response to this characterization of your article, which, again, the author of this post article does not link to? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's a misquote. I've got it, the article in question in front of me. It's called the article is called "The Evidence Israel Killed Its Own Citizens on Seven October." People can look it up themselves. And what it actually says, I mean, she's quite mis. I mean, this is quite deliberate, you know. This is not sloppiness. This is deliberate. She's misquoted it. Um, at, at, at best, it is highly misleading. I'll read the full quote to you. Uh, the confession discovered by the electronic intifada is one of the highest level confirmations to date that Israel killed many, if not most, of the civilians that died during the Palestinian offensive. So she misses out the words many and civilians. So the point of that sentence is that we don't know how, essentially that we don't know how many of the civilians killed on the 7th of October were killed 
by Israel itself. It doesn't definitively say that it was most. That's that's what she's trying to say in its in in her in her misquote of my article. Uh, and she also is just very sloppy. She gets things wrong, like basic facts wrong, like the the Israeli military veteran that I'm that I quote in the article. I mean that and that's really one part, only one small part of the article because it's quite a long feature that one. The Israeli soldier or former Israeli soldier was actually a major, not a general. So she just she gets basic facts wrong, and you know more generally her piece is just uh, a really sleazy uh, hit job. It just it mixes in these groups which she says are. I mean, I, I I've never heard of these groups like Telegram groups and a Reddit group which she says yeah. is uh, involved in Holocaust denial. Uh, you know, I'm sure things like that do exist. Um, I've never heard of these groups. They've got nothing to do with us or nothing to do with uh, the gray zone. It's just um, yeah. completely unrelated. It's so sleazy. Let me give you another example of her uh, journalism standards. And, and not just her. This is the Washington Post. So they printed this. So this is on them as well. I, I don't just want to blame this one reporter, this one journalist. This is what she writes about the gray zone. Because uh, Max Blumenthal also has been doing a lot of similar work to you. And just looking at the actual accounts of what happened on October 7th. One gray zone story quotes an Israeli helicopter pilot describing difficulty distinguishing between civilians and Hamas on October 7th. But the account distorts his testimony in which he describes in Hebrew the dilemma facing of facing so many terrorists, said Achia Schatz, director of Fake Reporter, an Israeli watchdog organization dedicated to fighting the disinformation and hate speech online. Okay, so two things there. One, she doesn't show actually how the gray zone distorts this pilot's testimony. Doesn't actually quote a single line from the gray zone story. She just defers to the wisdom of Achia Shatz, director of fake reporter and Israeli watchdog organization. So because the all-knowing Achia Shatz says that we distorted <laughs> something, that means it's true. She, she to be fair, quote, he is a fake reporter. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even quote him either. Like, you know, yeah. he could at least maybe make an argument as to what we distort, but he doesn't. She just like, basically, we're supposed to just trust that because he says something, it must be true and no need to actually substantiate the claim. Yeah, no evidence offered. It's just, uh, you know, we're just supposed to take these things at face value. Um, it's really, really, really dishonest stuff. I mean, that, I, I, I'm, I know which article she's talking about there. And, um, you know, it, she's mischaracterizing it it's more than that i mean as as we we now know for for definite it's more than the fact that oh the helicopter pilots were having trouble distinguishing between israeli captives and hamas that's not really what it was it was that they were just shooting at everything there'd been that 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 article the words that were used in that article that max was quoting from and relying on was was that they they israeli helicopter pilots had shot at everything between the Israeli settlements and the Gaza Strip. So all of these vehicles driven by Palestinian fighters uh, be on their way returning and, and uh, people on foot as well, going back to Gaza, which would have included many Israeli captives. They were all just being shot at indiscriminately. That's the point. There was no distinct distinguishment being made. They were just, they, were, they, they had the, and we, know, we now know why for sure, that they'd been given this specific order that they could just fire on anything. And so they weren't discriminating. Um, and the fact that, um, you, you know, I mean, I'm sure they would have liked to have got the Israeli um, captives back, ideally, but failing that, from their perspective, it's better that they were killed than captured. You know, and just one more thing about this story. She also cites the so-called research of something called the National Contagion Research Institute. Sounds very official. And it's chief science officer, a guy named Joel Finkelstein. That's his title, chief science officer, whatever that means. She doesn't mention, though, that this group, the National Contagion Research Institute, NCRI, is a partner of the Anti-Defamation League, which is a you know notorious anti-Palestinian lobbying, lobbying okay. group uh, where Finkelstein actually has a fellowship as a researcher. So, I, di I didn't know that that group was, uh, had this affiliation, actually. That's interesting. I mean, the, the, the ADL, of course, is an infamous Israel lobby group, really. I mean, that's, that's essentially its whole, its whole uh, sure. reason. Oh, it's just also, it's so disgusting. And it's all makes it so hard to talk about without 
again, falling into this. I mean, it's just, it's so upsetting that when you want to, when we want to talk about genocide, we have to combat first the idea that we're being anti-Semites. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this, this is exactly what happened in Britain, you know, for those years of the, of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, you know, anytime anybody wanted to uh, say something about the Palestinians, like for example, in, in, in 2018, when there was the great March of return, the, the uh, peaceful protests of Palestinians trying to uh, leave the Gaza Strip, um, just protesting on the boundary line with the Israelis are then shot dead. Even then, you know, because of this fake anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party, people, many people were reluctant to talk about it. There was this great fear, you know, yeah. that people would be, um, that, that anti-Semitism would be weaponized, basically, that um, there would be um, attacks on them within the Labour Party and that you were very limited. You had to be very cautious in, in what you said. And, you know, it's, it's a, we're seeing a very similar dynamic now, you know, um, back in October, there was, uh, there's been so many cases of these um, fake anti-Semitism claims against protesters who are trying to stand in solidarity with Palestinians to stop the genocide in Gaza happening. And there was a case in, in London, actually, in October, where um, there was a burglary um, of a uh, kosher restaurant and there happened to be some pro-Palestinian graffiti nearby. And the mayor of London said this was an anti-Semitic attack. And uh, the state of Israel later said it was uh, like Kristallnacht. They put a photo of it and um, a photo of Kristallnacht, um, historic photo of the, uh, you know, this Nazi pogrom against uh, Jews in, in Nazi Germany, comparing it with um, one smashed um, glass front door of a of an Israeli uh, restaurant in, it was actually Israeli. I mean, it was also kosher, but it happened to be Israeli. But I mean, that's kind of irrelevant. The point is that um, it was, it, it was, it had nothing to do with um, pro-Palestinian graffiti that happened to be in the area. It was a burglary and there was a non-kosher business in the area. There was also, there was an attempted burglary of it. And this was later shown in mainstream reporting, but the mayor of London never revoked his tweet and the state of Israel on its official account, you know, later put out this claim, this disgusting claim about Kristallnacht. So they were trying to say that this free Palestine graffiti nearby was anti-Semitic. Same thing with, what was it, Aaron? They said, we charge you, protesters were saying, we charge you with genocide. And they claimed that it said, we we do Jew, we want a Jewish, Jewish genocide. Exactly. And yeah. they never corrected that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the yeah. irony is that Israel claims to be the protector of Jews. The ADL and APAC pretend to be the protector of Jews, but they're, of, co of course, making Jews less safe in a couple of ways. One, by conflating being Jewish with being Zionist, which is, of course, makes, I mean, just being personally, I feel less safe because of that. Uh, I'm, I'm not a Zionist, but on top of that, I think it's dangerous to suggest yeah. those two things. And it's an yeah. anti-Semitic trope that all Jews are Zionists. You know, it's like the dual loyalty oath. Mm. Um, but also they are making it so that people will doubt or dismiss claims of anti-Semitism when there actually is anti-Semitism. Right. You know, we have people shooting up synagogues. That yeah. is anti-Semitism. Yeah. And you have someone like Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL pretending that well we have that on the right and then on the left we have equally bad anti-semitism in the form of pro-palestinian solidarity you know it's it's very dangerous what they're doing yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and it, this is exactly i mean i don't know uh, maybe i should do a sequel to my book because um it, it's very similar it's a very similar dynamic to what we saw in in, in the corbyn years in the british labor party because it was exactly the same sort of thing, you know, it, it, the the whole kind of Boyle, Crowd, Wolf dynamic of um, it. It meant that the uh, real efforts, real you know, principled anti-racist efforts, which in, includes efforts to combat anti-Semitism when it actually does arise, are then damaged, you know, right. because of these this weaponization of anti-Semitism. All right, since we. Uh criticize the Washington Post, I want to be fair and also make sure to mention the New York Times. I just want to show a couple of recent headlines that are just so unbelievable. First, this one, 
from the Times just the other day attempted to argue that the death toll in Gaza is declining, that Israel's killing less people. The decline of deaths in Gaza, the, the daily death toll in Gaza has fallen in half over the past month, reflecting a change in war strategy. That was in the New York Times. And of course, one of the reasons why the official toll has uh, maybe uh, fallen is because there's no ability to count the dead anymore because everything is being destroyed and people are under the rubble. And that's not taken into account. There's also only only a few, if not maybe one fully functioning hospital now inside Gaza. Um, so that's just like a, just a genocidal headline if I've ever seen one. And then this one yeah. uh, the other day in the New York Times as well, talking about uh, that incident where Israeli forces were mining a residential neighborhood to blow it up. And they ended up being uh, killed because Hamas struck them before they could blow up the explosives. And the trigger, basically Hamas attacked and that triggered an explosion that killed, I believe, 28 Israeli soldiers. And this is how the New York Times describes it. Israeli soldiers clearing buffer zone in Gaza die in a blast. So now an attempt to destroy, raise Palestinian neighborhoods to ethnically cleanse them. So, you know, they're not any, anywhere close to uh, Israeli towns. That's now a buffer zone in the language of the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, it, it just presupposes this right to the Israelis to destroy everything, any civilian infrastructure that they see. I mean, these are homes, you know, this isn't a buffer zone. These are people's homes. These are people's lives that we're talking about here. And the Israelis are going systematically and just literally doing controlled demolitions of these homes. And the justification is, be, is being this buffer zone that they allege they have the right to do i mean it it's i mean it's unbelievable it's unbelievable what's happening and it's unbelievable the um excuses being made for it in our media well asa thank you so much this was such an important uh discussion and thanks for all the work you're doing thank you very much for having me appreciate it and thanks for all the work you guys are doing too was a report from Asa Winstonley. And that's it for this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. Talk to you next week.